I need to get a beard like that. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. His, He's muted. His video froze. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> Eric Berry. Hey! I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a quick shout out about Ruby Dev Summit coming up in October. Uh, we also have one of our speakers as one of our uh, special guests today, and that is Marc-Andre Conoyer, something like that. Yes, exactly. My hey, French guys, is very thanks rusty. Thanks for having me. That's pretty good. Now, I know that some of the newer folks to the community may not know who you are, and you were on the show a really long time ago. So do you want to just kind of give everybody a brief intro to who you are and what you've been up to these days? Uh, sure. Well, probably my most uh, known work has been the, the Tin web server, which has been around for quite some time and still being used. So I still maintain it. But so that's probably like uh, how the, the work that has been more popular. But I've also created a few other stuff. Uh, more specifically, there's a tiny RB, which is my own Ruby implementation that I created. I also wrote a book that uh, some I have heard about. It's called Create Your Own Programming Language. It's the book that helped create CoffeeScript and many other languages. Nice. And that's mostly it. I think it was an early adapter of Rack 2 that, uh, and I wrote the first Rack adapter for Rails and a bunch of the stuff around Rack since Tin was the first web server to be based on Rack. So I think that's mostly it. And nowadays I mostly teach courses, advanced courses to developers online. Awesome. You've been doing those courses for a while too, haven't you? Yes, I have a course uh, called Owning Rails that has been going for uh, six to seven years now. So it's an advanced course about Rails. So it has been going well. Uh, is that, uh, uh, it's be because it's a really focused, really, it's an advanced course just for what we do actually is we rebuild Rails from scratch during the old course. So we start from Active Record. We rebuild everything from action view to the controller. And also a, late, uh, a few weeks, a few months ago, actually, I added action cable too. So it's a pretty fun course, and I think people enjoy it. It's really helpful if you want to master the framework really quickly. Is it an online course or an in-person course? It used to be a live course that I would teach, like you would join. I used to use uh, Adobe Connect. Like people would join a bit like we're doing here, and it would ask questions in the chat room. But now... I converted it to pre-recorded uh, videos so people can just purchase the course and do it on their own pace. So there are exercises and a bunch of stuff to help you do that. But it's yeah, it's pre-recorded now. That's incredible. Yep. So uh, the the topic that we have you on to talk about and what you're going to be speaking out at about at Ruby Dev Summit. I'm sorry, I can't even talk straight. I went to bed at 4 a.m. this morning. and I think I woke up at 7.30. So anyway, I'm not entirely coherent. Anyway, let me, I'm going to stop you there just for a sec. Cause I got to say, before we get too serious, I got to say, Mark, uh, you, you, so everybody has a doppelganger, right? You are Merrick Christensen's doppelganger from, from, <laughs> oh. you look exactly from you, what if uh. Merrick Christian, he's, he's, he's a developer on JS Jabber. You look exactly okay. like him really? if he had a big gnarly beard. <laughs> Am I right? Well, thanks for your right? Okay. Yeah. You, well, he I'm does look a bit like that. Merrick. Okay, cool. I don't, it's it. a compliment. Merrick's a very is. handsome fellow. <laughs> oh, well, I'll take the compliment. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway so, right, I had to throw that out there before. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good times. So, yeah, so we have you on to talk about learning machine learning. And we did an episode on machine learning probably a month ago, but it was interesting to kind of come at it from the aspect of, 
how do you learn it? And um, you also have a bit more experience with doing machine learning in Ruby, which um, Tyler really didn't have. So I'd like to just dive in. Um, assuming that people have listened to that episode and kind of get the basics of machine learning, um, mm-hmm. do you want to just tell us a little bit about your experience with machine learning and then we can talk about how you actually pick this stuff up? Uh, sure. Well, my experience, I've, um, so because well, I can talk a bit, a bit more about this later, but, uh, uh, the way that I learned it is by like recoding, coding several projects that interested me and one, and I try like several, several times, like to learn machine learning and failed all the time. And mainly I think it was because all the courses that I found were really math heavy. I don't know if you guys have tried to go and, and watch like the Coursera course with the, from uh, Andrew Nong or NG. I always forget how to pronounce it, but uh, it's a really popular course, online course to learn machine learning, but it's, it's really math heavy. It was at least for me. So it didn't work for me. I tried to like schedule myself to watch one of his videos each, each day and something like that, but it, it didn't really work. Uh, until the day that I like read about a paper, I don't know if you guys have seen this, it was called or nicknamed like the Google chatbot paper. It was a bunch of researchers, they had made a, like a chatbot that was uh, based on neural networks and you would train the neural networks with uh, movie dialogues. And at the end, well, what you would get as an output is was just a, the chatbot could have a conversation. It was pretty amazing the kind of conversation it could carry with just training from the, the movie dialogues, like it was all coherent, it could follow the a conversation with the several sentences and all of that. So it really blew me away. And that was the driver for me, like to, I told myself, oh, I'm going to recreate something like that because it was uh, like, as it's, as it's often the case with the research paper, they didn't publish the code, right? So it, there was nothing around that you could just execute and, and mimic the results. So I told myself that I would, uh, recode it and create it from scratch. So I did the, eventually manage to create it. It's actually, if you want to check it out, it's on github.com slash maconoyer, my username there, and slash neural convo. It's for neural conversational model. That's kind of the name of the research paper from Google. Uh, and that's my re-implementation of the Google chatbot paper. It's not in Ruby, uh, like you mentioned earlier, but this one is in uh, Lua or Torch. Torch is the name of the framework used there. It's a popular uh, framework for machine learning used at Facebook, uh, Google some time ago, and DeepMind to use it, I think. Oh, wow. So I have a question just around the whole machine learning and stuff, because that really definitely seems to be like the wave of the future. Is there any kind of special like hardware? I mean, do you have to go out and buy like the top of the line hardware to just start toying around with us? Or are computers today pretty much fast enough to build proof of concepts and implementations? But then, you know, when you actually go to deploy this to any kind of real production scene, are you going to have to have like an entire farm of servers just to handle like this neural processing? Or is it, you know, really just a couple of servers and it just does its thing? Uh, that's a good question. But there are two kind of two parts of machine learning. There's the training one, which requires lots and lots of uh, power, right? And the, the like you mentioned, like the deploying one usually requires a bit less uh, CPU power or GPU power, as I, I'm going to talk a bit m- maybe later. But like when you, you want to actually use the model that you've built with machine learning, it requires a bit less power. So that usually is not going to be the problem. The problem is with training because you want to provide how machine learning works as you provide examples, lots and lots of examples, and you train it several times on the same example. So that requires lots. But the more power you have, this the faster it's going to be. Um, so to give you a concrete example with my, uh, but actually as you, your question was, can you do it with uh, like everyday computer? Well, I, I started initially with my project neural convo with my iMac that I've, I've, uh, I'm using this uh, currently using for this interview and it worked pretty well, but, uh, the limit that I've reached is not really the power. Uh, it was the, the memory because you want to fit like your model, you want to train your model, you want to fit it in memory. So I kind of, 
uh, I was limited with the size of the model that I could use to train my chatbot. So the, the results that I was getting was not as good as the one from the Google chatbot paper because Google has access, obviously, to like really large machine to lots of memory so they can fit models that are really large and have lots, we say, lots of parameters. Uh, so that's mainly the number of layers, the number of cells that you have on each layer uh, that kind of tells how complex your chatbot or your model can be. Uh, and you have to fit the whole thing in memory. So that was, it became limited pretty quickly uh, on my iMac. And the other thing to note too is you can train on a CPU. So in this case, it's gonna use the RAM of your computer, but this is, gonna, this is pretty slow, like because it does lots of matrix operations. So you wanna move to the GPU as uh, soon as possible. And it's, uh, my iMac is an old one. It's using it as an NVIDIA card. So I could use CUDA, it's called. It's a kind of a, a programming language specifically for programming on a GPU. But at, when you switch the GPU, you have to use the GPU virtual memory, right? So you're no longer using the RAM. So you have to use the, the RAM on the GPU. So that's another problem. Now I only add like four, four uh, megs of RAM on my uh, card. So that's where I kind of reached the limit of the model. I could not train a model larger than a bit less than four megs. So I bought myself actually a computer, I built a PC from scratch with two, uh, I forgot the name of the cards, but the 1080s, I think, or 1070s mm -hmm. GTX cards from NVIDIA. So that I put them in parallel. So now I could uh, train a total of uh, around, I think it was uh, 14 megs or something. So much bigger, larger models. But I uh, have kind of, to sp I have to split my model to run on two GPUs at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was at VMworld last week, or no, it was the week before last, but they had some hardware vendors that were selling hardwares that you can run your virtualization stack on and then you could do machine learning stuff so it would connect to the the GPUs. And yeah, they had like four or six essentially video cards in the back of the server along with, you know, all the bays for the hard drives and things like that. So that, yeah, you could do, you know, a large amount of machine learning across the, the GPUs and, you know, use the capabilities there. Was that like uh, NVIDIA cards and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, yep. because that's the problem I think they're they're adding now in machine learning is everything is proprietary, right? You have to code in CUDA mm -hmm. and this is not going to run all the other. And that's a problem too with if you were using Apple products is now they have switched away from even the big Mac Pro. They've switched away from NVIDIA. So you can no longer yeah. use CUDA in any of the newer Apple products. So that's kind of a bum, I think. Well, they are coming out with the external GPUs, you know, through the Thunderbolt. So that could still open oh, up possibilities right. to get the external uh, GPU for that. But man, we're, I think NVIDIA is going to, I think we're in a kind of a pickle here because you have all these ethereal miners, you know, like taking away all the GPUs from people who are wanting to do machine learning. It just kind of hiked up the price a bit of them. So that kind of sucks. Yeah, definitely. It's a, there's a monopoly there, but they're. I think they, because I mean their product is much better. It seems, or it's used by because it's used by lots and lots of people to do uh, lots of cool stuff. Yeah, it's also kind of so, funny because I talked to them about sponsoring some of the shows to talk about this particular problem set, and they basically looked at me and said, "We already own that space." <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Yeah, you can see where why that's about there. Yeah. Wow. So once the uh, computations have been done, you know, so you've done all the trainings and stuff, and now you just have your model that gets deployed. So you know, fewer resources needed for the actual uh, deployment of things. How does it go about uh, storing and then doing progressive training? Uh, that's in the, yeah, that's another entirely uh, kind of field of machine learning where you want to do, I think it's called online learning, where you keep improving your model uh, over time. So there, you could just use to just train your model and say that's going to be the final model and then you deploy it and you don't update it at all. And so, as I said, this is going to require less uh, CPU or GPU time, but it's still going to require the memory, like the memory size, because the model has to be loaded entirely in memory. But what some people do is they convert from GPU to CPU, the model. So they just train it on the GPU, but then convert the full model to a CPU so it can and then deploy it to the server. 
because it doesn't need to run as fast and it's much cheaper to run a server with uh, lots of RAM than a, a server with a large GPU. So that's the good way to go about it. And then you could do, like you said, some updates and some minor trainings on the on the CPU. And because it's less data, it's going to be acceptable in speed and performance. So that's a that's an approach that I've seen a lot is to convert it to CPU. Yeah. So my whole idea around here is to create a Slack bot. And this Slack bot, you just add it into your channel. You use machine learning, so you're communicating with this bot. And you can tell it, like, hey, I want to spit up a whole new instance of this web environment, this web server on DigitalOcean. And then it goes out, starts researching the DigitalOcean API, learns how to just deploy with best practices to DigitalOcean. Well, you guys have a following out with DigitalOcean. Now you say, well, hey, bot, I want to actually migrate everything over to AWS. And then the bot just, you know, learns how to do that. I mean, I think that'd be awesome to have a a bot DevOps guy. <laughs> sure. do everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a really cool idea. I don't know if it's uh, doable, well, for for like the machine learning, for machine learning to work, you need to have lots and lots of examples yeah. of. Uh, well, with the supervised learning, you you have to need to have lots of labeled uh, example, meaning like when you do this, I expect you to do that. So you would need to have like, or I mean, scripts of DevOps doing the thing you want the bot to learn. So I don't know if it would mm-hmm. be a good way, but or you could have like there's a new lots of research now going on with. Uh, uh, unsupervised or to uh, reinforcement learning like so you've seen like the, all the stuff around go like the the dev mine has won a bunch of things with go and now i think they're going after a data to uh training some bots to do that i don't know if you guys have seen this but all of this is based on reinforcement learning where the it's a different approach instead of having like labeled example when you say hey, when i give you this input you give me this output well with reinforcement learning what you do is you just let the bot do its own stuff, and at the end you say, oh, that was good or that was bad. So it needs to do the thing multiple times. So you could have your DevOps chatbot do try to deploy a site and fail like one million times, but maybe it's going to succeed like a few thousand times. And then you, you just tell him, like, that was good, that was good, and that was bad. Or you could just tell it from the status code or stuff like that. or And that would be another way to do it if you don't have the example. But... You can imagine how long that's going to take, right? If you want to train it like one million, one million times and you have to revise the result at two or stuff like that. So it's, it mm-hmm. takes a lot longer with reinforcement learning. Yeah, wasn't that kind of the example that the chess player robot used where it just played out every single combination of the game or tried to uh, to become a good chess player? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what it did with Go and the Dota, Dota 2. But 2 is the, it, it plays against itself. Like it yeah. plays millions and millions of games. So it plays, it plays more games than anyone around the world. So that's why it keeps getting better all the time because it can do play, it can play the games much faster than a human. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and then soon it'll realize it doesn't need humans. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah. that actually begs the question. Because it seems like so many people are generating pure knowledge through this machine learning. And it seems that there should be a com- – you know, you know how, how science is, where science, everybody contributes to science. You know, it kind of – that knowledge becomes public. That public knowledge helps grow science. Same with technology. The technology helps grow technology. I would think that – and maybe there is, maybe there isn't – a place where – machine learned stuff goes into this great big pile of this is what we've learned as as humanity so far through machine learning and this is now going to become our basically our global brain that we can tap into and know is there anything like that or any initiative like that that's that's saying we want to absorb all of this machine learning data and make it into this like super super brain which, of yeah. course, down the road will, will end up killing us all and taking over the I, world. I saw I that movie, say, too. I think they call that Skynet, isn't it? <laughs> 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 I, yeah, I think that's the, uh, 
Yeah, I think that's the ultimate goal, like to build an algorithm that, uh, well, that's going to replace us. But I think what you mean, like it's that an algorithm that can learn and that already knows everything. And I think we're maybe, I don't know if we're halfway there or close, but at least I think, I think what's exciting about machine learning is now we're starting to realize we're using an algorithm that is really similar for all those stuff that we're talking about, all the problems that are solved nowadays with machine learning and more specifically is neural networks. All of those, is this, it's based on the same exact algorithm that is backpropagation. That's the algorithm that is used for training. Uh, so most of those are all based on that. So I think it's the, what's exciting is that we're at the point where we're pretty sure we've we found a good algorithm, one single algorithm that can learn almost anything. And that's we're closer to the what you were talking about, like having a central mind that knows everything is that we have found just one algorithm that can learn everything. But I think the problem we have now is if you have a model, you want to train it for a specific kind of problem. It works for that specific kind of problem. Maybe like knowing distinguishing cats from pictures, right? But if you want to take the same model and train it to translate French to English, wow, that's going to try to do two things at once. That's going to fail miserably because uh, it's two things that are too different from one another. And I think that's the next step is to uh, build a model that can do like some very different things at once. But I think the fact that we're and that's what excites me personally is that I know to me it feels like we're really close because we have an algorithm, we have discovered the algorithm that can do all of this. It just we don't have yet discovered the way, I think, to structure it properly, maybe to train it. Maybe that's the maybe that's the, the key. We we're not training it properly. Uh, so I think that's the, the fact the part that is really exciting about machine learning. Maybe we should train those more like we're training kids, right? With our curriculum, like we start with simpler things and when we expand with more and more things and whatnot, that's not how we're training uh, models now. So there are so many uh, things to try and mm -hmm. to be tried with by, by people. So that's the uh, that's what's cool about machine learning. But I think we're getting closer and closer to that big giant brain that you're talking about. Cool. So, so far we've talked about training the, uh, the neural network and then, you know, just building this model. Here's an idea. So I've written several hundred or thousand tests, R spec tests for an application. And could that be used as learning data to build a automatic testing robot <laughs> to <laughs> test my application so I never have to write another test? Uh, well, probably, <laughs> probably <laughs> you, you have to try it. I don't know. That seems like you have some good ideas. I think you just have, uh, yeah, you give it a try. Sometimes it works. But I've, I remember that reminds me of some people I've seen, like they train on, I don't know if you've seen this, they trained on like answers on Stack Overflow. And it became like a bot that could answer your question. You would just like ask your question and it would spit out some code. Here's how to do it. I want to open a file in C Sharp. Boom. And it would just show you the code. That was pretty cool. And that's just based on training from the question and answers for, from Stack Overflow. I don't remember it was if it was super good, but in some cases it was it was decent. So that's yeah, really cool. Yeah. So a bunch of lots of really cool stuff you can do. And all that stuff, like when you have a sequence of word or it could be a sequence of code or, or images or sound, even though it's all based on the same model, it's called a LSTM, long short-term memory kind of layers to get to your neural networks. And that's the same kind of model that I've used for my neural conversation model, but it's also the same kind of model that Google uses for translation. So it's all the same thing underneath. So I think that's the thing what I'm talking about, like the algorithms are kind of uh, merging, converging towards one single algorithm is that all those things that are, looks really different, but now we're kind of getting closer to all using the same kind of model for all those things that look different. But it's everything that is a sequence in input and a sequence and an output, you can train it with a really similar model. But we're not there yet is, is that you have to, you have to try it and then usually you have to spend a lot of time. That's what machine learning sci or scientists or whatever you call them, researchers do, is you tweak the knobs or the parameters of those and try and nobody uh, knows what's usually what it's going to do. But sometimes you just find the answer and you, you don't stop touching the knobs and you call it a day. This episode is sponsored by Airbreak. I don't know about you, but week in and week out, I spend hours debugging my code when I could be working on building new stuff. Then I started using Airbrake.io. 
our latest sponsor, and the time I spent debugging was cut in half. Airbrake alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Sign up at getairbrake.com slash rogues for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial and you'll be shocked at how much time it saves you. Again, that's getairbrake.com slash rogues. So one thing that I'm wondering about with a lot of this, you know, we're talking a lot about how to do machine learning and some of the principles behind it. But let's say that I decide, you know what, I want to I want to build a machine learning system that will, you know, take in a large data set. You know, maybe I take in uh, some of the government data out there. Right. So maybe it's weather data from NOAA or um, crime data from across the U.S. Or, you know, maybe there's some political polling data that's out there that I'm curious about or, you know, uh, other things that, you know, uh, either because of my political leanings or because I want to know who's right. Um, and, and I'm kind of agnostic on whatever point, you know, it's like, okay, how do I figure this out? So I'm going to go solve this problem with machine learning, but I don't actually know anything about machine learning. So where do I start? Like, where do I start, uh, pulling this stuff together and plugging it in so that I start seeing results that are going to help me figure this stuff out? So you mean, how do you start uh, for uh, like a typical developer? Yeah. Who, who, how can you start? Uh, well, I talk. I can talk a little bit about how I did it. So as I said, so I tried. I tried with the Coursera course from Andrew Nung. I think I think I get his name right. Um, but that didn't work. And what motivated me really is to have found a project that I really, really wanted to to do, which was the Google Chatbot paper. So I think that the first step is to find a project that you really want to do. And after that, what I did is I. I uh, went, I can paste the link later, but uh, I found a, a site to browse the research papers. So that's going to so- sound really daunting at first, but just bear with me with a moment. So what I did is I started reading some simple papers that were the more popular in the fields. And like at the beginning, it was, would really go over my head with just, oh, I would understand some of the words, right, in the paper. So I like, wow, I can understand maybe a, a third of this. And it was really... Um, not re- really difficult, but I kept going and read more and more papers. And as times went by, like I, I could like say, oh, I've learned this from the, this other paper and start to put things together. And at the, after a few months, I would say I started to understand more and more what the papers were about. Because once again, like machine learning is a really evolving field really rapidly. So you have to kind of keep up to date with what's happening in the research paper. But it's true also for other fields. Like I did the same thing when I wanted to learn about compilers and parsers that I read research papers, but those were much older than the one about uh, machine learning. So I kept reading and reading about those. And sometimes the papers do come with the code. So you can inspect what the, how they implemented this and what frameworks they use. And I kind of tried to mimic a bit what I would see in the papers. And I uh, copied a lot of the code that I would see from papers about translation. Right, because it was really similar to my own problem. Chat, chatbots are really similar in structure to how the translation, neural translation is done. So I just copy the code and uh, mimic what they were doing. And from there, I kept reading more papers and eventually add a, uh, my own Google chatbot paper implementation. That, gave, that yielded some really decent results. So I think that's the way to do it is... You have to kind of uh, accept the fact that it's not something that you you can learn quickly. It took me a year just to get over that, to start mm-hmm. understanding the research paper enough to a- implement some parts of them, not everything. I don't understand everything when I read a research paper on machine learning, but I do understand some of the parts uh, enough to implement some a simple version of what's described in a paper. But I can, I'm not a machine learning expert, but I think I went from knowing zero or almost zero about machine learning in a year to being able to implement some simple models. And that was enough, I think, to uh, implementing uh, the neural convo is, was the first implementation, open source implementation to implement that model from the Google paper. One other thing that I'm curious about with this is, you know, you so you implemented the neural convo and you, you mentioned that earlier and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But um, how much of that did you have to build from scratch? Because I know that a lot of people, as they get into machine learning, they go with something like Python or some of these other languages that have large scientific or mathematic libraries. And 
I keep hearing about Ruby's deficiencies in that area. Um, so is it deficient or yeah? Yes. Well, Ruby is deficient. Not, it's not really about the language implementation that has very little, little to do with machine with, uh, for what we're concerned. So machine learning is really matrix computation heavy. So you need to have a good scientific library like NumPy that in Python. That's why Python is so popular in machine learning is because they have NumPy that has existed for so long, has been battle tested and it's really fast and has a bunch of features. Uh, and I think it can run on GPU too. So I'm not sure. I haven't used it that much. So that's one of the options to use Python with NumPy. So that's the important part to have a, a numerical library. And also there's... Um, there's Torch, which is actually a library implemented in C. So now they have a PyTorch that you can use in Python. But I've used the one that is uh, based on Lua. It's called just Torch. That's the one I've used for my project. And it's mainly like a very similar to NumPy, but it's in Lua and LuaJIT, which is uh, actually faster than Python on most cases. So it's really, I think it's a real good language that looks a lot, if you've never used it, it's really similar to JavaScript in many ways, but it's actually also much simpler and removes some of the parts of the JavaScript that you are quirky or weird. So mm-hmm. it's a really nice language. So just go do so it. So huh? I would you, yeah, well, so that's what I did. I, I, I used Torch, but at the, when I started working on that project, uh, the model, the base of the model, which is called sequence to sequence, it's kind of the type of model that you have to build, was not, I would say, mainstream much. So like the big libraries like TensorFlow and Torch didn't have any built-in ways to do it or where uh, they were not good enough to with what I wanted to do. There were some example in Torch that I based my start coding and copying some of the parts that I would see from Torch examples. And some of the papers that I would read, and I would go from there. And uh, also, eventually, when I got once I got some some decent results, so they were not exceptional, but I just got a chatbot that could re- respond to "Hi" and "What's your age?" and "What's the color of the sky?" was was not super impressive. As soon as you would go out from uh, ask other questions, it would just babble something that made no sense. So I published it on GitHub and some people that knew more about machine learning started contributing. That's where things started improving more mm. quickly. So it was with the help of uh, open source contributors too. And yep. I'd love you to talk about, if you don't mind, the um, the Great Code Club. I, I was looking at this and I'm, I'm pretty amazed. You're definitely, you definitely are an entrepreneur with an eye towards teaching other people, which I think is great. What uh, what was your what was behind uh, the motivation behind that, and what did you kind of take from that? Sure. Well, yeah, I think it started with uh, so as uh, Chuck mentioned. So I've been teaching online classes for some time now, maybe six, seven years, and I think when you, that's that's all I did. Right? I kind of stopped coding on some on interesting projects or any stuff that was not directly related to my courses because, well, as with everybody, I had to make a living and pay the bills and that's how I did it with the courses. But after some time kind of kind of got bored with just doing that, keep it, just redoing the same classes. So I came up with this idea of the Great Code Club, which was uh, for, for me personally, a way to force myself to come up with a new project each month and for, and at the same time to would help people and would teach people how to do it. So I add for, it was over the course of a year I think it was two years ago or something like that. And uh, each month I would just start the month with uh, choose a project, uh, learn everything that I had to 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 code this project and rebuild it from scratch and then record the videos, the voiceover and build uh, a few exercises around that. And I would publish it on the Great Code Club, which started initially with uh, just a forum. It was a discuss forum. Mm-hmm. Is it called Discuss? I forgot. But uh, so discourse. I installed this on a some server. Discourse, yeah, exactly. Thanks. Uh, and then I would uh, just have people pay a monthly fee, a subscription, and uh, they each time I would promise them that each month I would uh, publish something. It was actually coded entirely in JavaScript, so I promised them that I would deliver a new course each month. And the first one was um, a 2D retro gaming. And I, for the second one, I think was re-implementing a language, which I had some uh, experience with. 
And I went like this and eventually and built everything that interested me. And I t thought that might interest others. Uh, we built a virtual machine, uh, some parts of a database with an, an indexer. A uh, cool project, I think, was building a recaster, recaster, a 3D recaster. Like, you know, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, how they were the first version we were coded. We, called, we coded all of this from scratch in uh, the browser. It was a really cool project. Uh, we built a virtual machine with a debugger. And um, back-end and front-end frameworks. So that helped me uh, also learn about like uh, stuff like Backbone, Ember, Angular, and whatnot for when building a front-end framework. A real-time engine to push updates to the browser like Socket.io. And we finished with uh, the final project in December was to me to rebuild a neural network, which I knew that was my first implementation ever of a neural network. And I knew nothing about this at the time. So I had a book at my own so i started just flipping through the page and i uh, learned really quickly but it was really i learned only on the surface what how to build a neural network so i did manage to build a course around that on the final month of the core of the club but my understanding of, of uh, neural networks machine learning at that time were really superficial so we did manage to build a neural network that could predict some really basic stuff in the great code club but uh, i think it's might not be the best course to go delve into the details and machine learning and really master it. It's really more superficial stuff. So that was the old plan or the old story of the great co club. It was mostly for me to force my, because I think it's really tough when you're in that spot. It's been a long time that you've coded or you, and you want to get out of it. I, I tried several things like I, I wanted to build a SaaS or any sort of recurring revenue. I was kind of tired of teaching people. And I tried several things and failed and kept failing and I felt stuck, really stuck and started to feel depressed. So that's the way that I found to get out of that hole and force myself to learn new things again and have fun coding again because I kind of lost my passion a little bit uh, while teaching all the time. Mm. I love the blog post that you talk about, the lessons that you've learned. Never start with nothing. Inspiration is perishable. There's no such thing as a failed project and lowering your expectations. It's awesome. Yes, thank you. So that's a blog post that I wrote about uh, when I was uh, starting with the Great Code Club. And it's the when I discussed about my um, how I learned, actually. So the machine learning is that I the approach that I've used for learning this is the same approach that I've used for learning about parsers and compiler is that uh, quite some years ago, I think it was eight years ago. I don't know if you were around in, uh, in Ruby at that time, but there was lots and lots of competition with Rubinius, like... Uh, Mm -hmm. MR, where it was starting to get more uh, faster. And also there was uh, JRuby. Like uh, there was so, so much competition. Everybody was trying to build the fastest Ruby implementation at the time. And I remember that was super exciting. I was so excited during, exciting during that time because everybody was just coding furiously and everybody would show numbers and say, hey, I'm a bit faster than this implementation and that. And everybody would have a fight, a friendly fight. And I think it was so, that's the part that is really exciting is everybody's motivated to give their best and just to be better than everybody. But at the end, everybody's benefiting from all those advances. So that really drove me to learn about this stuff. So I spent same approach that I discussed earlier to learn about uh, this stuff. And my objective was to build the smallest Ruby implementation. And it was based and I finally based my design on the virtual machine of Lua, which is to me one of the most amazing things that I've seen in software. The design of the bytecode in the virtual machine of Lua is incredible. It's so simple, but yet so effective. So it's uh, I think it's a work of art if you want to ever dive into something that is worth diving into. I think the bytecode of the Lua virtual machine is pretty incredible. Lua is also the officially backed sponsor of World of Warcraft. Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay, didn't know no, that. I'm not saying that, but if you want to modify <laughs> World of Warcraft, that's actually yeah. the language that they use. You yeah, know, you bring, up Rubinius, you bring up Rubinius, and one of the funny things that happened, so this was back in... Man, this must have been five years ago. I was at a Mountain West Ruby conference in Salt Lake City. And Evan Phoenix was out there talking about Rubinius. And he never once explained what Rubinius was. And I've never heard of it oh, before. Okay. So I'm sitting there. And about 10 minutes in, I, <laughs> I'm, such a, I'm such a moron. I raised my hand, interrupt the, interrupt the talk. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so 
He yeah. gave me a really crusty look and then just continued. <laughs> <laughs> well, even I know, well, to, to his credit, I think it was really deep. He, he was coding lots of the internals of Rubinius and done some pretty amazing work there. So I think sometimes when you're too deep into some coding, you kind of lose perspective. So maybe that's what happened there. But uh, even Phoenix, he helped me a lot with my uh, Tiny RB was the name of my uh, Ruby virtual machine. So I uh, stumbled through a lot of problems building that VM. It was my first one, but he helped me a lot and explained like some of the ways how we would solve some problems. So a lot of the uh, the reason why my implementation is really fast is because mostly of uh, even Phoenix. Yeah. That's cool. So during this time when you're choosing a project every month, did you find, um, how did you know what to work on? Or how, how do you know what side projects that you want to work on? Um, well, so um, I think I've written this in the notes, but I have four steps that I go over when choosing a project, when choosing a side project. And I've always followed those four steps and that has helped me to complete the project. So um, either completed to enough to my satisfaction or to a level at least that I can publish. So that's how, that's the four criteria that a criteria I'm going to have used all, all the time to choose a project for the Great Cold Club, but also for me personally, is the first, I always would choose a project that doesn't have any dependencies or very little dependencies, because that's a big problem that I see a lot of people uh, do, is if you, the people say, I'm going to start a side pro or this type of project and I'm going to base it uh, because I want to learn Amber, I want to learn Angular, and, the, and then I will learn this too. And they put it's, and it ends up being a large mud ball of a bunch of technologies and and you spend a few months and what, what you, all the only thing you've done at those few months is stick together two technologies. So that's perfectly fine is your old goal is just to learn the technology. But if you want to build something and have something to show for it at the end, that's not the, a good way to go for it. So my first criteria is always to uh, choose a project that has as little dependency as possible. So all the 12 projects that I've done in the Great Cold Club has, have close to zero dependency. So we rebuild everything from scratch. So that can look a little bit stupid in, in retro, um, when you look back at it, but usually you can find some ways around or you can use, I'm not saying I didn't use any libraries, but sometimes there was just one, but then no way I was going to use like 10 or 20 dependencies on a project or something like that. But that's because I think that's not fun and you don't learn much and you don't, uh, usually you're, you're not going to end up with something at the end. So it was my first one. The second one is I usually start and do a project that I copy. I copy from somebody else. I don't copy the code, but I copy the idea or I copy the structure or I copy what they do. Uh, so, or I borrow would be maybe a better terms, but I prefer to say uh, I just copy, copy the idea, what they have and how they've done it and try to do a little bit better. Uh, so the third one is I try to keep it small. I really force myself to keep the number of lines of code small so that has really helped me in the great code club is usually I, I would set the level to 300 lines of code and not more so it would force me to say oh i'm going to cut that feature because that's going to be too much i would just try if i would like build a database engine like we did in a great code club i would say oh maybe writing to file it's going to be too much work so what i did is i kept the, the database in memory and just focused on rebuilding a data structure uh, binary tree for the indexer. So that's all we focused on about because if we wanted to build a real database engine, it would be, end up being too big. So that's my third uh, one. And the final one is I usually try, well, not maybe not for the great code club, but for my personal project, is I would try to focus on just one feature and make it like a, the better X than uh, on this type of feature. So let me give you an example. For example, with my... Uh, uh, project in what I what I did is initially I told myself I'm going to build a faster mongrel clone from scratch in less than 500 lines of code. So the key feature, the unique feature was that's going to be faster and also more stable than mongrel. So I would copy mongrel. So that was uh, the second criterion. And also I would do it from scratch. So with little to no dependencies and I would force myself to keep it under five hundred lines of code. So I would cut features and stuff like that so that I could manage to, I could maintain it and it would still be fun to work on it because I could easily refactor it. And I did, 
So I uh, took this approach with all the projects in a great code club, all my projects in machine learning. And that's usually that has helped me a lot in completing the project and shipping them. So that's a really important thing is you want to ship them and put them on GitHub at least and then promote it. And that's useful for so many things, right? Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, I need to get to picks. I've been doing Angular Dev Summit this week, which has been super. We've had 660 people sign up for it. I'm assuming that Ruby Dev Summit will probably have a similar turnout or better. But yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Eric, do you have some picks for us? I got one. This one is actually right in line with what we're talking about. You guys know about Code Sponsor. Well, I'll talk about Code Sponsor as well. Code Sponsor is one of my picks, of course. We um, we are helping sustain open source projects through, through uh, ad-based funding. Uh, we now have, I think, almost 300 repositories, almost 200 developers involved. We've got a, a nice flow of money coming through that that basically, if you want to get funding for your open source project, for example, Thin or something like that, uh, just go to Code Sponsor and you can add your repo super easy and you just start making money. The other thing that, uh, and the reason I brought that up is because that led me, we, we find these sponsors that are interested in communicating, getting their message out to, to developers. And one of, the, one of our sponsors, one of our first sponsors is CoreLogics. And what they do is they actually use machine learning in your logs to be able to determine, uh, they have something called logregation and it uses machine learning to actually say, look, we know there's a lot of noise in your logs. We're going to use machine learning to actually just take out the parts that we think are the most important. We're going to, we're going to display that for you and give you a lot more tools around it. So, uh, corelogics.com, I think they're a great company. Uh, I love them because they sponsor code sponsor and they sponsor open source developers, but that's my pick. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So my first pick is the best mouse for programming, or at least that's what this review says. So I picked up one of these mouse, uh, one of these mices. It's a Logitech MX Master 2S, and it's been actually really nice. took me a day to get used to, but it's been a great mouse because my other one died on me, which never happened before. But So that's my first pick. Um, my second pick, just with the Hurricane Irma and all that junk that's been happening on the southeast United States, uh, we lost power several times last night, just as you know, we're in Atlanta, so we definitely didn't get anywhere near the storm that Florida did, but we still lost power, and I was able to continue working and not have any downtime you know, for like 20 minutes that we were out, thanks to UPSs. And that's just an uninterruptible power supply. And not only are they good for uh, surges, uh, where you have a spike in electricity, but they're also really good for protecting your electronics for brownouts, which is where you have a dip in electricity. So uh, definitely anything that you care about that's electronic, throw it behind a UPS. Nice. So I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. First one is, I just want to shout out again about uh, Ruby Dev Summit. Um, definitely go check it out. Um, it's free if you want to just watch, and it's you, you have to pay to get access to the 
uh, video recordings and things like that. But I'm also uh, giving half the money to the speakers. So it, it's also kind of a, a way to say thank you to them for uh, putting the time in. And then uh, one other thing that I'm going to pick, I, I had the opportunity, we're going to put it that way, of finding out how water gets into my house. Uh, and that's because the water main on my house cracked and was leaking water all over the place. Um, in fact, I have a big uh, hole that we dug out that then uh, caved in. <laughs> so I, uh, we, we wound up bypassing it. So uh, the Home Depot is where we got most of our parts. They had pretty much everything we needed. So I'm going to pick them. And then um, we also rented a mini excavator. I didn't know they had these things, but it's like, uh, you know, it's got the big bucket on the front and it scoops dirt. And so uh, I'm going to pick mini excavators just because I think they're cool. And uh, the last thing I'm going to pick, we did talk about uh, machine learning and data science. And there's a terrific podcast out there by uh, Kyle, I forget his last name. Anyway, it's called Data Skeptic. And uh, it's really enjoyable. So every other week he interviews somebody. And then um, on the other every other week, um, he sits down with his wife and actually explains to her uh, data uh, data science concepts. So anyway, it's, it's pretty good and I really enjoy it. Uh, and I met Kyle at some of the Microsoft events that Microsoft has had me come out to. They've also had him come out. So anyway, uh, great stuff. Mark, what are your picks? I have two. The first one is one of my uh, courses, actually a free one. So if you want to enjoy rebuilding stuff from scratch, it's called uh, Rebuilding a Ruby Web Server from Scratch. I go from uh, building three types of server, the same. We go from the parser to rack, what is rack and how to. uh, And then we implement three types of concurrency mechanism, one the same as Tin, an evented one, the same as Unicorn, a pre-forked server, and the same as a Puma, which is a thread-based server. So if you want to know about the difference of those three types of concurrency, how Rack plays in in, in all of this and the, how the web server is built, you can check it out. I'm going to uh, provide the link. And also, I talked a little bit earlier that how I learned machine learning and uh, learned about compilers is by reading a research paper. Well, a good site to browse research paper is called Archive, what are the special... Uh, uh, way to write it. So I'm going to provide the link, uh, dash sanity.com. It's a really great site with some aggregation of some of the best papers. It can do some recommendation based on the ones you like, sort them by uh, the, the categories and whatnot. So that's a good way to browse a research paper and start diving into some of them. All right. If people want to uh, follow you on Twitter, or GitHub, see what you're working on these days, anything like that, maybe have a blog that people should read. Where do they go? Uh, it's going to be mostly on uh, Twitter, I guess. I'm not super public about I don't have much time now to do some public stuff, but it's going to be mostly on Twitter. So twitter.com slash M-A Cournoyer. So it's my last name, no space whatsoever, just M-A and my last name. That's it. And the same username on GitHub too if you want to follow when I'm, I'm coding. That's it. All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll go awesome. ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everyone next week. All right. Talk to you all later. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.